I found this all very frustrating, to be honest. It's sending the banks in a slightly different direction. There are plenty of things that we need to be looking at to actually stop crime, but also be considerate to vulnerable customers. And they should be the focus of this, not Farage. Welcome to The Laundry, the podcast connecting AML, compliance and financial crime to the real world. I'm your host, Marit, CEO of Strice, and in this episode, we are talking about the financial crime stories that mattered in 2023. It's our final episode of the season, and it's time for some reflection at the end of the year. While financial crime continues to make big headlines all over the globe, in this episode, we're going into the archives and pulled out the stories which will still be important in 2024 and beyond. In today's episode, I'm joined by some great guests to discuss... What's the best approach in combating the appeal of organized crime? Are financial services ready for deepfake calls from customers asking for their life savings? And will debanking still be in the pages of every newspaper in 2024? To dive into this topic, I'm here with Jessica Kath, Head of Financial Crime at Thistle Initiatives, and Neil Donovan, Senior Associate in the Corporate Crime Team at Ashurst. Welcome to The Laundry to both of you. But Jessica, can you start by telling me about yourself and your background and Thistle Initiative? Absolutely. It's lovely to be here. Thank um, you. <laughs> I am Jess. I'm the Head of Financial Crime at Thistle Initiatives. We are a regulatory compliance consultancy, but I head up the fun stuff, the financial crime team. Um, So in that team, we support a huge range of firms across the financial services sector and also weird and wonderful ones on the side to really look at the financial crime controls all the way through from building all the way up to assurance as well. So in that role, we really get to touch on lots of the topics that we're looking at today. um, So we get to see what's going on in lots of different firms. So hopefully I can bring something to the conversation. And uh, Neil? Tell me about you, your background and Asher's. Thanks. Thanks, Marit. And thanks very much um, for, for the invitation to join today. Um, so Ashurst is a global law firm. We have 30 offices internationally and we act for a number of the world's largest banks and fastest growing fintechs. Um, my practice focuses on um, global cross-border regulatory and criminal investigations And we advise across the whole spectrum of financial crime risks. So bribery and corruption, money laundering, tax evasion, sanctions. Um, So, yeah, hopefully very relevant to our discussion today. Super interesting. And uh, I'm not sure you can reveal it, but what's the craziest uh, cross-border financial uh, crime investigation that you have done and that you can (laughs) reveal? Uh, oh, well, yeah, I'd have to be very careful about what I say here. But, um, you know, lots of uh, over the past few years, certainly lots of um, bribery and corruption cases, particularly in Asia, um, payments through third party introducers, um, related money laundering issues. And of course, um, in the past 12, 18 months, increasingly investigations into sanctions and companies who have violated um, sanctions targeting Russia. So things right out of a movie, but except it's real life. (laughs) Exactly. Well, uh, thank you both for joining me and for the introductions. But let's dive into the conversation about what are the financial crime stories that mattered this year. First of all, I got to say, it's really hard to just pick a few because there's so many all the time in different countries. And it's just it seems like a never ending, never ending story with these uh, these things. But we've picked out a few and 
The first one is coming from The Guardian, which is that Mexican cartels are actually the fifth largest employer in the country. And that's really shocking. And the story is that organized crime groups in Mexico have about 175,000 members, which is huge. And this is research uh, published in the journal Science. So they used a decade of data on homicides, missing persons, incarcerations, as well as information about uh, interactions between rival factions, etc. And they then mathematically modeled cartel membership and uh, arrived at this, uh, this number. And of course, it's a number that they want to see reduced. And their, and their argument is to then, of course, stop recruiting new members instead of locking more members up because that actually increases the murder rate. But these figures are from Mexico. But how reflective is this of OCG status in the UK and elsewhere? I don't know if you want to comment on on that, Jessica. I mean, we're not quite Mexico, but we're certainly not marvellous ourselves. In the UK, we certainly have a lot of organised crime groups. And I think when the NCA started publishing their sort of strategic assessments, I think around 2018, the numbers have only gone up. Since then, there was a good uh, Rusi article a, a, a while back that looked at this. So we're certainly not dealing with it very well. So we have seen we've got organized crime in the UK and it's increasing. And because of the sort of cost of living crisis and a lot of the economic troubles that we have in the UK at the moment, we are seeing a lot more vulnerable people, a lot more people getting involved in organized crime. And we're seeing it really starting to grow and mature. So Yes, we are not Mexico, but we are not perfect ourselves. Yeah, not Mexico yet, but I saw a number that there is 59,000 people in the UK involved in serious organized crime. That's a shockingly high number. I don't know if you worked uh, or you have uh, uncovered a lot of uh, organized crime groups in your investigations, Neil. Yeah, I, th- I think it's, it's a very concerning figure, as you say. And um, as Jess rightly says, it only seems to be on the increase here. I think something that's sometimes overlooked with organized crime groups is that it's the, the broader impact it has as well. So there's, there's the obvious impact it causes for the victims of those crimes, but there's the broader destabilization to society, um, you know, exploitation of individuals, human rights abuses, but it also has impacts. Like it prevents economic growth, right? And it it stops foreign investment because um, why would companies want to invest in a company where there's a high level of organised crime? Um, so it really does undermine um, the integrity, the prospects for any, I think, social economic system. I guess we should just clear up some definitions as well, because you can be involved with organized crime without being like a full blown gang member. And that is, uh, you know, especially when it comes to money mules, because these organized crime groups recruit a lot of people to be money mules, but they're not necessarily like a full gang member and so forth. And I guess that's why the the number just keeps rising and, and rising. I don't know if you guys have any perspective on, on that. I'll jump in very quickly on Money Mule. So I'm actually doing a, a webinar in a couple of weeks talking to students um, in different universities across the UK and further than the UK, really looking at 
issues around things like getting involved in becoming a money mule because you have so many people who are in more vulnerable situations and it looks like easy money and they're not the OCG they're not the person moving drugs or or you know killing people or whatever um quite often they're people just making a tiny cut of moving some portion of the, of the money and they won't know the whole network they'll just see a tiny part of it and it will be a small part to make a bit of extra money as they're a student or something else and quite often they don't realize the potential impact so if you get caught as a money mule it might impact your credit score you might not be able to get a mortgage when you come out of university there's lots of different things that people have to be aware of around you know when we talk about money mules and we have in the past talked about money mules around young people so people like students but with the cost of living crisis we're seeing that profile change. So we are seeing some more sort of older people coming into the the money mule space as well. So we're having to change our controls to try and look out for different uh, uh, characteristics when we're dealing with things like money mules. But it's a, it's a complex situation for sure. And these are not the people running around with drugs. These are people that are, are making a tiny, tiny portion and don't understand the full crime group. So Neil, of course, a lot of compliance professional listening to the podcast. So What signs should compliance professionals look for? Yeah, no, it's it's a really good question. And um, I think what Jess um, has just spoken about is actually very relevant. Sometimes you need to look beyond the actual group itself and, and look at who else is potentially um, involved or facilitating the work of, of the organised crime group. And, you know, a really good example of that are professional enablers, actually, who have who are increasingly receiving quite close scrutiny and attention. So um, professionals, lawyers, accountants who are um, uh, providing the services that enable the um, organised crime group to facilitate their criminal activity. And I think if you're on the compliance um, side looking at this, they're the types of risks that you need to be looking out for. I mean, OCGs are becoming increasingly sophisticated in terms of how they work. They're not just using cash or artwork or expensive items. You know, they they manipulate and um, exploit financial products and and services to, to actually um to, to to launder their proceeds of criminal activity. So, I think it's a difficult job for compliance professionals. There are all the usual red flags, of course, anything that doesn't look right that, that needs to be escalated. But I think a key strategy for compliance teams is just broadening that perspective and thinking outside of the direct target of the OCG. Yeah, I think yeah, I agree with you on the enablers because I've spoken to a lot of, you know, frontline workers in banks and, uh, you know, there's a lot of um, accountants or auditors that are can be also targeted and, you know, they help facilitate these crimes. And if you find one you can kind of then start to see the pattern and you know it's a uh, complex uh, complex networks do you guys think it's then a shame that the bill that was recently passed the uh, economic crime and corporate transparency Act. yes that they didn't include the uh, you know the helpers into that the, there was a section that margaret hodge was really disappointed that the uh, enablers weren't included in that bill yeah i mean what i would say and you know i'm, I'm not just trying to stick up for lawyers here and um, but you know there's there are already very strict regulatory rules when it comes to this kind of thing in place against um, professional service providers who are the enablers in these situations. So you can't legislate for bad actors who will obviously be, be present yeah. in any profession. Um, but it's just, it's I suppose it's supervision of firms and, and how um, 
how robust the supervision is of those of those professional services actually implementing and um, complying with the regulations. And I think what we might actually see is as professional neighbours increasingly are um, complicit in this type of activity and that's detected, we may see more rigorous enforcement of the professional services by their own um, regulators. And I think that'll be an interesting space. Just to add a little bit and maybe to just contradict a little bit, I think the Professional enablers are very, very key, absolutely, and they have been in these big money laundering cases. But when we look at things like fraud and scams, we should shift our attention also to the tech providers. And obviously, we have the online safety bill, but we have a lot that needs to come out that looks at Facebook, that looks at Instagram. And I think that's that's the biggest gap, because obviously, a lot of money mules are really picked up through social media platforms. I guess that is a perfect segue to our story number two, which uh, is deep fakes. And our next headline comes from the New York Times. Voice deep fakes are coming for your bank balance. So this spring, an investor in Florida called his local Bank of America to discuss a big money transfer he was planning to make. And then he called again, except that the second call was actually a software program that had artificially generated his voice and tried to trick the banker into moving the money elsewhere. So the investor and his banker were the targets of a cutting-edge scam attempt that has grabbed the attention of the cybersecurity experts. So this is a new way of using artificial intelligence. I'm just really curious to figure out how in the world, banks and financial institutions are going to protect themselves against such crimes that for sure will will see explode the next year. So a lot of firms are bogged down still trying to deal with other stuff and are just thinking deep fakes aren't that bad yet. Let's just not think about it. But it is, you're absolutely right. It's only going to increase. Um, at the moment, we're still seeing it on the periphery at the moment. It's kind of a a fringe threat at the moment. And that's because there is so much to be made from the simpler things. So, you know, your standard social engineering scams are so much easier than doing, you know, deep fake video things and things like that. But deep fakes are becoming much easier. So we'll only see it, you know, increasing. But at the moment, it's still very simple to do the simple things. And banks also really need to focus on making sure that they're still uh, making sure that, you know, fraud in the simple traditional sense is uh, prevented. And then they need to layer on their deep fakes, etc. Because quite often um, when I speak to firms, they want to kind of jump a million miles an hour. I went to a conference recently and 70 percent was about AI and deep fakes. Um, And actually, it was we need to sort of take a little bit of a step by step approach to this. Let's get the basics sorted and then we can layer on our sort of controls to prevent deep fakes. Um, But we'll get there. We'll probably be a few more steps behind the criminals, as we always are. But um, we will get there. And it's something that we need to take more of a look at going forward. Yeah, I can imagine when the technology improves even more, you can have like deep fakes as a service, just press a button. And it's like already there. A million yep. customers are deep faked and the calls go out. And I actually spoke to a head of fraud in a bank and he was like, email is compromised, phone is compromised, text is compromised. Like, why can't Signal just sell us their source code? And from now on, we only speak to our customers through like an encrypted channel in our app. It's so hard to keep up with like all of the other channels because they're so compromised. It's so difficult. 
it really, really is very, very difficult. And I think I just, the advice that I give to firms is just build things that are proportionate. Um, And I think we were having this conversation before we started that they're not police. They just need to do as much as they can that's proportionate to uh, the risks that they they face and make sure they're trying their best to capture those. And my only advice as well is to really look at their product set, their customer types, and others will be more susceptible to this type of risk than than others. Mm. And what is your risk base? Really focus on those, you know, the old classic, the risk-based approach. Just really look at what that is and build controls that are proportionate, but also remember that you're not the police. Neil, have you seen a lot of deep fakes? I've yet to come across any cases involving them, but there's no doubt that they're they're on the rise, as as we've seen in the report. And um, I think one of the risks of deep fakes is how easy it is to create them. And, and you can simply down one can download an app and create their own deep fake. It doesn't really need sophisticated tech. Um, so I think that that's probably quite a concern um, for, for for banks and financial institutions in terms of how how this is going to be controlled going forward and rules. I think it will be important in the challenge be developing rules that are fit for purpose, right? And this is this is a new type of technology, a new type of criminal activity. So just lifting the existing ro- rules and transposing them to um, this type of behaviour, I'm, I'm not sure necessarily be feasible or will work. But I do think, and this is perhaps unfair on um, firms, on, on banks and financial institutions, is that there will already be that expectation at the regulatory end that they're alive to this risk and that tools are being calibrated to pick up on these types of issues. Um, and they'll, they'll very much be treated as the first line of defence. And, you know, at a point where really firms are just still trying to get their arms around the issues and the risks themselves, I think that does place quite a heavy burden on them. So it'll be interesting to see how, how that's dealt with. If you are a criminal, you don't care about complying with the upcoming EU AI Act and uh, AML5 and AML6. Like, you don't care about the regulation. You just use the newest technology. Whereas if you are a financial institution, you're like, oh, we are expected to combat the newest technology that's just getting out of research but we have to comply to all these things so you know that's also a very difficult position to be in for a bank uh, at least that's what I'm hearing and seeing from the companies that we work work with and also I mean combating AI powered crime you need to use AI to do so either but it's hard it's not easy to to use all the newest technology either. So we're, we're seeing a lot of firms use AI to do better monitoring and better behavioral analytics. But it really takes, we've seen some firms test their AI with other AI, and it then gets very complicated. And the main thing that the regulator is concerned about is can you explain your models? And that's the difficult challenge. My response is usually, you probably can't explain it, but are the outputs any good and can you verify the outputs? So I'm focusing a little bit more on the effectiveness of the outputs and, and the strength of the outputs, but we still need to see what the regulator, they're still focusing on, you know, tell us what your model is. Neil, do you think it will be like an AI arms race in 2024? <laughs> I think that that's actually, that's spot on, Merit, and because we're also um, seeing a lot of the benefits of AI in the work we do on the investigation side and um, a lot of our clients, their internal investigations teams are utilising AI tools to analyse evidence and to really help with the investigative process. Um, so that that's certainly one of the benefits and you know, whether it can outpace the uh, the criminals remains to be seen. What would happen if the regulators just like, you know, ja- it's January 2024 and they're going to be like, you know what, 
bank guys, banks and financial institutions, we really need to combat crime. This year we're introducing free to use AI. You know, you don't have to explain it, just like combat crime. We want to see actual numbers go down. That's what we care about. Not if you send data to the US. We don't care about that. Let's go. I think we'd have a very busy 2024, so you know, I'm, I'm all for that. Um, <laughs> but um, you can't understate the amount that banks are already putting into this and the effort they're putting in in terms of investment and just people. You know, I think that should be more than enough to satisfy the regulators. Actually, there's so much work that goes on um, on the front line at the banks. Obviously, I think having a regulator who encourages use of AI and who's open to that and will allow firms to try new techniques and not take action against them or criticize them for doing that, I think that would be very healthy and, and is something that should be encouraged. Do you think the uh, regulators should be more encouraging in terms of AI, J- Jessica? I think we're quite lucky in the UK that the FCA is quite innovative. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've had many conversations with some members of their in- different innovation labs and they do try to engage with industry in terms of innovation and use of tools and technology. Some other regulators, not so much. And there are many things that our regulators still working on, but they are, compared to other regulators, a little bit more open. I really want to have them on the show at some point. So I'm like trying, trying to get them on. Ownership is important at Strice. Our UBO maps are a signature feature for a reason. That's why it's crucial that our users should be able to amend and edit the ownership structures of a company the minute they get the new information. Strice's latest feature, Edit Ownership, does just that. You can edit ownership information all in a centralized location. Quick and accurate data management is key to making sound business decisions, especially with no loss to your workflow. Goodbye, outdated ownership data. Hello, AML intelligence. Nice! Let's move on to the third story. That story comes from Reuters and this is uh, a topic that should be familiar to anyone in the UK. We've already done a st- like a podcast on this topic, and that is UK's Hunt says he will change law to stop political debanking. So the British finance minister, Jeremy Hunt, has said he will tighten banking rules to make sure customers could not have their bank accounts closed just because other disagrees with their political views. And the practice known as debanking became a political issue after former Brexit party leader Nigel Farage says his account was closed due to his political positions. And an internal bank document unearthed by Farage later showed the decision was partly taken over his views alongside commercial considerations. And under the new drafted legislation, the notice period for terminating an account will rise from two months to 90 days. Banks will have to give customers a clear and tailored explanations for why an account has been closed. So first question is, like, is this debanking scandal really a financial crime story, Neil? That's a really good question. I think it's clearly there's a lot of political sentiment to this. Um, so it's partly law, it's partly regulation, and um, it's quite a large part politics as well. But it's it's been a really interesting story over the summer. And look, the concept of debanking has been around for a long, long time now. We've had debanking cases for you know over ten years actually, and this is just the latest iteration of it. Is is the politically exposed persons who feel that they're being debanked um, unfairly? But I do think the the new rule changes will be interesting because, that, as you mentioned, Mary, it will require banks to give kind of clear 
transparent reasons for why they are closing accounts, not something that banks have necessarily done in the past. And I think it, it will um, bring quite a compliance burden and require quite robust record keeping and consistency in messaging to customers. So it, it's going to be an interesting area. I suppose from from my perspective on, on kind of the contentious legal side, what, what is quite interesting is that we are already seeing quite a lot of legal litigation around debanking. So, for example, you know, it can lead to discrimination issues or, or give rise to discrimination claims under the Equality Act. And, and there is a, a track record of customers bringing claims because they've argued that a decision to exit them discriminates against some kind of protected characteristics. So we're, what we're anticipating is that if, if debanking continues into 2024, we may start to see some more of these claims. Jessica. If now banks need to give tailored explanations to customers why they're kicked out, then they're like, hey, actually, we suspect you of money laundering and we sent in a suspicious activity report to the government. That is not good because then they have the time to delete their traces before the police can actually come and you know do something about it. So how do you think this new legislation will impact uh, you know, society's ability to pursue financial criminals? I found this all very frustrating, to be honest. I think it's it's sending the banks in a slightly different direction. There are plenty of things that we need to be looking at to actually stop crime, but also be considerate to vulnerable customers. And they should be the focus of this, not Farage, um, because we do have some debanking issues for vulnerable customers. And in those cases, yes, it does make sense to be giving them a, you know, a clearer view on why their account has been closed. But to be honest, this is a, an extra layer of admin that compliance does not need right now. We are focusing on a lot of different challenges like APP fraud, like the big OCG pieces that we've just talked about. Do we really need to be talking about Farage and his debanking issues? Probably not. And to come around to the question around how firms are approaching this, they need to have flexibility to be able to off-board people when it's out of their risk appetite. And I think this pushes firms into a direction where they might not be able to do that, or they would feel pressure not to do that. You know, if I'm talking to a slightly less mature firm, perhaps a, a payments institution or a small payments institution, they might not have the controls in place to manage the risk, even the reputational risk around some of these individuals. Um, so I think they firms must have the flexibility and it means it must be a sensible risk-based flexibility to be able to offboard people when they don't have the controls in place to manage those risks. Yeah, definitely. But I agree with you. I mean, banks don't need another layer of uh, paperwork because, as you said, there are more important issues to tackle. But before we wrap up this one, if you guys could rewrite the PEP rulebook in the UK, what would you add in or remove if you got to waive the regulatory wand? PEPs is interesting because there's, there's no getting away from the fact that PEPs do pose a financial crime risk. And I think the arguments that we've heard over the summer that PEPs should be treated the same as every other type of customer just isn't realistic from a financial crime risk perspective. Now, of course, you know, there are different degrees of risk associated with each PEP. And so I think what's abs actually absolutely critical isn't necessarily rewriting the rules, but to Jess's point, is making sure that the way the rules are implemented and the way 
compliance teams, um, Adiata rules is risk-based and that they're assessing risk on a case-by-case basis. So I think that we, we would benefit some, from some further clarity or guidance, um, at least around you know, how to define a PEP. I think a lot of firms sometimes struggle with that. Um, or what specific measures that they should take depending on the the level of risk associated with that PEP. So more guidance would be welcome, I think. But um, yeah, I don't think there's any getting away from the fact that that, that PEPs need to be treated um, as a special category of customers. I mean, to add to that, I actually think the current structure and the guidance is pretty good on PEPs. The FCA has some really strong guidance on PEPs. I do agree with the point around, you know, clarifying the prominent public function, that part of the definition, there's still some issues around that, you know, relatives and close associates. And when I speak to firms on the ground, one of the key issues is how vendors interpret that definition, because they are often just relying, well, they shouldn't be relying, they should fully understand their vendor, but they are often using vendors and lists in order to establish who are PEPs and who are not. That's how it's done. Um, And they need to make sure that, how vendors are inter- making that interpretation is clear. So there's a little bit more guidance, not just for financial institutions, but also for vendors themselves would be helpful. But ultimately, there are other things to be worrying about. The FCA's guidance on PEPs is pretty good. And if you're looking for a deep dive into all things debanking and PEP, go check out episode 63 of The Laundry, where we spoke to James Nurse of Fintrail and Phil Cool of Oak North. And that's available whenever you get your podcasts. To finish up this conversation, we've talked about three different stories, but now I would like to hear what are your stories or the fin crime story of 2023 that you think truly mattered. So, Jessica, let's start with you. Can you give us a story you think mattered this year? So mine was actually the tail end of the previous year, but I wanted to bring it up because of all of the things we've been talking about this year. So the piece around Bunk with their historic victory against the Dutch Central Bank. So they were in a court case in whether or not they could use AI in terms of their uh, money laundering controls. And I really wanted to bring this up purely because of how much we're talking about this in this session today. And again, it's all everywhere in the industry at the moment. So this is a good example of where the regulator did not want them to use AI in their transaction monitoring. um, And they wanted them to take a more traditional approach. But Bunk said, hang on a second, I can do this better with AI. And it turns out absolutely they can do it better with AI. And it was a great example where they actually pushed back against the regulator, took them to court and won their court case. And they are now able to use AI in terms of actually monitoring their transactions and as part of their um, financial crime framework. And I think that that's a really interesting piece. And back to the point around what is it like in the UK, the FCA is open to AI. And this is a good example of a regulator where they weren't, but now they have to be. So it's an interesting story that I wanted to to raise today I because it has that such story well. And exactly. I tried to get someone from Bunk to come and talk about it right after you know the ruling, but you know they were super busy. But maybe now one they might like a do. year later, what impact? So if there's anyone from Bunk, you know I'll send you an email. Please reply. We want to have <laughs> you on the show. But Neil, what's your pick for a story that mattered this year? Yeah, well, unsurprisingly, um, I've picked a piece of legislation, and it's the. Um, Economic Crime and Corporate Transparency Act, uh, so very recent, just passed at the end of of last month. 
And that includes, and um, this has been well reported, a new failure to prevent fraud offence, which will essentially act as a standalone criminal offence and means that any large organisation will be held criminally liable for failing to prevent fraud um, committed for its benefit but by an associated person. So that's going to have a real game-changing effect. This is a, a real milestone moment, actually, in terms of uh, corporate criminal um, enforcement in the UK wh when the Act comes into force, which we expect over the next 12 months. And, and I think this is probably going to make three major changes um, for, for listeners of this podcast. I think, one, we've seen with other failure to prevent offences, bribery, um, failure to prevent the facilitation of tax evasion over the past 10 years, and um, that it brings about a change in corporate behaviour. So just driving that compliance culture and expectations is the first change through enhanced controls, obviously, and, and policies and procedures. Um, more generally, I think it will just raise compliance benchmarks. So I think how um, companies are benchmarking that their, their control frameworks. And finally, it will obviously bring with it a much high, heightened uh, risk of enforcement action. And we've seen very significant penalties for failing to prevent bribery over the past 10 years. And um, I think that's going to be the risk for firms of criminal prosecution um, or large penalties through deferred prosecution agreements. That is also an important story. Like I said in the beginning, there is no shortage of stories to take into an episode like this because it seems like this field is just developing so fast and there's new things uh, happening every month. But that brings the spin of the laundry to an end. Jessica and Neil, thank you both so much for joining me. Where can people find out more about you and connect with you? So you can find me on LinkedIn, Jessica Kath, and uh, also check out the website for Thistle Initiatives. Neil? Uh, Neil Donovan on the Ashes website uh, or on LinkedIn. We're also located at Spitalfields Market. So um, if you're in the neighbourhood, please look me up. Money makes a world go round. Money makes a world go round. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to go check out the back catalog and follow The Laundry on your podcast platform of choice or subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please also leave us a review. To get in touch with The Laundry team, you can comment on the Strize LinkedIn page or email laundry at strize.ai or send me an email at marit at strize.ai. Your host for this episode was me, Marit. Our producer was Matthew Dunmiles. Our engineers were Dominic Dellergy and Nicholas Thon. The Laundry is proudly produced by Strice, an AML intelligence system. Find out more about us at strice.ai. See you next time. Money makes a world go round. Yeah, money make a world go round.